Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sasodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you. Good to see you again. And today we have an intriguing guest, both scientist and, and business person, economist, David Sloan Wilson, written a whole bunch of books that uh, Raj will introduce in a moment. But David, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. And David and I met a few months ago um, uh, in Connecticut, where I was speaking at the Connecticut chapter. And uh, he has been working with some of the people there uh, to think about how do we apply the principles of evolutionary biology into business. And it really got me intrigued as I then started uh, reading David's work and discovered that he's he's really a giant in the field, uh, considered by many after Darwin and E.O. Wilson to be one of the foremost evolutionary biologists of our time. Uh, David spent much of his career at uh, SUNY uh, Binghamton as a distinguished professor of biology and anthropology at Binghamton University, I think it's called now. Uh, he's the author of many books. I've read several of them now, including the ones we're going to talk about today, Atlas Hugged, uh, This View of Life, uh, Darwin's Cathedral. The one I'm reading right now is Does Altruism Exist? Uh, and the good news is that it does. So that's a good thing. <laughs> and, only, uh, only, only when special conditions are met. Okay. <laughs> but it can exist. Um, and then the, you know, David is really a polymath. He's applying uh, his, uh, his knowledge and his understanding of, of human beings and all life, really, into a variety of different domains now. Everything from public policy to economics to, uh, you know, you name it. And, and, and we're really looking at how it impacts conscious capitalism. So one of the interesting possibilities here, which we will discuss, is how this provides really a theoretical basis for why conscious capitalism works as well as it does. So welcome, David. Great to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much. I think was discussing earlier that you and I have embarked upon uh, some very intense bromance over the last uh, <laughs> uh, a few um, a few months. I've been gobbling up your books uh, in addition to, um, to um, uh, you with my book. So it's very exciting what's happening. And uh, I'm very excited to share it um, in this podcast. Yeah, so uh, let's let's start with one of your books. It's called "This View of Life: Completing the Darwinian Revolution." Uh, so, if you could talk about why do we need to complete the Darwinian Revolution, and is Darwin misunderstood by most of us? I, I, I think I got that sense that most of us think Darwin uh, meant something different than what he actually was saying. Well, I mean, Darwin's theory of evolution is is legendary, uh, of course, but only within biology. When I say the word evolution, you're likely to hear the word genes. And so, um, and so on the one hand, evolution, uh, evolutionary theory proved to be so very explanatory from the very beginning. Uh, this, uh, I guess I should begin by saying how simple it is. Um, it can be summarized in three words, <laughs> variation, selection, and replication. To unpack that just a little bit, just about everything we can measure varies. Those differences make a difference in terms of survival and reproduction, and the traits of organisms tend to be transmitted down the generations. And if you put those three things together, then this magic happens. Basically, organisms adapt themselves to their environment. You can think of a species as like malleable clay that gets shaped by its environment. And so that idea of simple proved to be amazingly explanatory. It explained everything all of the facts that were lying all around. And this is a theme I actually wanna develop, this idea of hiding in plain sight. I mean, Darwin 
and everyone else had all this information about natural history, plants, animals, fossils, you know, geographical distributions, uh, all this information lying around, but it, it was not organized. And this simple theory played that organizational role, but uh, as it unfolded, only for genetic evolution, only for the biological sciences and not uh, everything associated with the words human, culture, and policy. And so that has only happened recently during my lifetime um, that uh, this expansion of evolutionary thinking beyond the biological sciences do include all things human. And so that's what completing the Darwinian revolution is, is taking this theory, this view of life, in the final passage of the origin of species, Darwin said, there is grandeur in this view of life. And so, and so um, uh, expanding that to um, all things human, therefore all things business, all things policy is, um, is uh, completing the Darwinian revolution. That's what's breaking upon us uh, right now. Historians will look back and they'll call it fast. They'll say, what an amazing synthesis took place in the 21st century. Um, but for us, it's slow. <laughs> and, and also for us, it can be catalyzed. We're in a position to make it fast. And so, and so uh, these are all things that we'll be talking about. So these are things that just happened literally in the last couple of decades, right? The uh, leap forward in thinking about evolution and applying it in cultural contexts. Yeah, and I think that, um, I mean, we're going to be compressing a lot into a short space here. So there is deep scholarship is, is needed for this. But one of the things we can say is that the last 70 years has been dominated by a tradition of individualism. The individual is occupied center stage. Everything needs to be understood in terms of individual thought and action. In economics, individual uh, self-interest. In my own field of evolution, uh, this was, you know, uh, um, everything that evolves increases the fitness of individuals and their selfish genes. And so we have to contend with a, a broad tradition of reductionism and individualism that has been really the, you know, the there's the proverb, the hardest thing for a fish to see is water. So individualism has been the cultural water that we've been swimming in. And to go beyond that and to just be more systemic and more holistic, to be able to think once again that a group, a society can be like an organism in its own right, an idea which was has deep, deep roots, goes back to antiquity. Once it was common to think that way, then it became like completely rejected. Now it's back, but it's back uh, on a scientific foundation that it never had before. And that's another theme that's going to be emerging here when we talk about conscious capitalism. I mean, it's so vibrant. I mean, these companies that you showcase and that you've been involved with, they're so strong by virtue of being cooperative. Um, their stories are well told, but still they could be more impactful mm -hmm. by providing by providing this uh, theoretical foundation. That goes for the very concept of society as an organism. Therefore, the practical application of how businesses can be more like organisms. A lot of what we're talking about is like, how do we turn organizations into organisms is what we're, is what we're talking about. Yeah, so let's, let's zero in on that word uh, cooperation because most of us think of Darwin, we think of competition, survival of the fittest, right? Nature is red in tooth and claw and all of that kind of thing. Uh, but that's actually a misreading of Darwin. Right? It's much more about cooperation. Well, I mean, it begins with um, the, the simplest articulation of the theory is that individuals vary, and it is a form of competition that causes some to survive and reproduce better than others. And so uh, you can say that competition is at the center of, of Darwin's theory, but something that Darwin, it took a while for Darwin to realize that that competition can have toxic consequences, that when you look at competition at the smallest scale among the individuals that are actually socially interacting with each other, you, you see very clearly, we can all see, that the cooperator is at a disadvantage. Cooperation, by definition, requires extending yourself towards others or towards one group as a whole, and that's inherently vulnerable to exploitation by more self-oriented 
individuals. And so there's a sense in which selfishness beats altruism within groups. Darwin eventually came to understand that. And so he needed to add something to his theory, which is that basically cooperative groups beat selfish groups. The groups of cooperators robustly cannot compete um, groups of individuals who cannot cohere. So it's not a matter of the presence or absence of competition. It's a matter of the level of, right. of competition. We don't want competition within groups, at least not the disruptive variety. And we do want competition between groups if we want those groups to become cooperative. And that extends to multiple levels, which we'll get to. So I guess in a way, what you're sort of saying is that, um, you know, when people talk about the various U.S. basketball teams, the dream teams <laughs> that you put together, you can have a team full of stars or you can have a team that plays really well as a team. And over time, the teams that play really well as a team are going to be the all-star teams that, that, that can't cooperate um, to, to, to run the plays and effectively play the game. Absolutely. And that can, you can prove that just within the sports world. There's many academic studies which show that uh, the teams that function best as teams are the ones that um, uh, you enhance cooperation. And if you simply put together a bunch of talented individuals, and what's really toxic is that if you have a team in which a, a certain star gets paid much, much more than the others, those teams demonstrably do not uh, perform well. And as part of our individualistic mindset, we're so brainwashed into thinking about individual performance that we think that it's, creating a team is so simple that we just get the most talented individuals and we put them together. I mean, and it makes sense against that, that background, but it's deeply, deeply misinformed. I mean, what, what could be more important in the business world than to get that point? Well, that's a great segue, David, into one of my favorite stories, uh, which is the chicken experiments. And uh, so if you could uh, describe those uh, and <laughs> the insights from that, I think, uh, for business, you know, we can discuss that. Well, yeah, wait a hold on a second. I, I can't let that one go by. We're going to talk <laughs> about the chicken experiment yeah. and how it relates to conscious capitalism. Yeah. I never thought I would hear those phrases together, but this will be fascinating. <laughs> David, we're all, we're all a bunch of chicken experiment. Well, I had I had the uh, I had the honor of a one hour conversation with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I had one hour with him, and I chose to feature the chicken example. So, so that's how that's how important the chicken example uh, is. It's basically imagine that you're a poultry breeder. You want to breed a better strain of egg laying hen. What do you do? Well, hens always have lived in groups. They still do. Nowadays, they're housed in cages, which is unfortunate. Um, even when they're free range, they live in groups. And so why not, you have a bunch of groups, why not, why not um, monitor the productivity of each hen? You pick the most productive hen and you use them to breed the next generation of groups. What could go wrong? And plenty can go wrong. It turns out that when you do that, you're selecting the biggest bully. You're selecting the biggest bully who has achieved her productivity by suppressing the productivity of the other hens. And because bullying is very heritable, genetically heritable, in five generations, you have created a nation of psychopaths. And they um, are incessantly attacking each other, plucking each other's feathers and murdering each other in their incessant attacks. And of course, egg productivity goes down. Well, plan B is you have the same groups, but now you monitor the productivity of the whole group and you pick the most productive groups and you use those hens to breed the next generation of hens. And so now you're selecting for the ability to get along, for the ability to get along. And egg productivity goes up 160%. And uh, one of the first times I started to use the chicken example in a lecture, a professor ran up to me and she said, that first chicken experiment describes my department. I have <laughs> names for those three surviving chickens. And so you can just imagine, you know, that a department has a policy of rewarding its faculty for their individual productivity, for their individual productivity. And what you'll get is not genetic evolution, of course, but something that works out the same. The cultural selection, the cultural selection of, of ind some individuals over others, or the mean chickens in all of us, because all of us are flexible to a degree. And if you incentivize us to 
be self-aggrandizing. Uh, some more than others will will respond. We're all flexible to to a degree, and so this whole idea that that some kinds of competition are toxic and that we need to be smarter in how we apply competition. I think one one part of this message, which should be very appealing to businesses, is that we're not doing away with the concept of competition. We're actually featuring competition. We need competition. We need entrepreneurship, but we have to apply it at the right levels. And if we don't, we will get, and we do have all around us, examples of the first chicken experiment. So David, that's a good segue into multi-level selection. So I believe you're known most in, in your for your work in that area. Is that fair to say? In multi-level selection? Uh, yeah. You can describe yeah. that and explain that to us. Well, I, in a sense, I already did with Darwin's insight that uh, that uh, that when you have individuals competing within a group, then uh, there's no context for cooperation there. I also use the game of monopoly for this. If you think of the single game of monopoly, there's no context for competition. It's all about driving everyone else bankrupt and getting all the real estate. The only context for uh, for cooperation in a monopoly game is when the current losers cooperate to beat the current winner, the front runner, and then so they could compete. And yet, if I were to ask you to play a monopoly tournament in which the trophy goes to the team that collectively develops their property the fastest, then automatically everyone flips into teamwork mode. Now cooperation is the only context for within group interactions. And that's only because you applied a layer of between group competition. There's no context for cooperation among teams. And so uh, right away, you would have to add yet another level of cooperation, of competition among teams of teams. And so, and this is um, really quite amazing because it means that, as I like to put it, that uh, this, this multi-level selection is like a, an evil alchemist that turns, that turns gold into lead. And so what's virtue at one level becomes vice at another level. Self-preservation is a good thing and, until it leads to self-dealing. Helping family and friends is a good thing until it leads to cronyism and nepotism. My nation first is a good thing until it leads to conflict among nations and global warming. And so everything that we see as pathological at a certain scale is actually virtuous, virtuous at a smaller scale. Very few of us are truly selfish. If by that we mean only for ourselves as individuals, almost everything we're doing is a form of cooperation, but when that cooperation takes place at smaller scales, then it permutes into pathology. And now if you look at businesses that way, and you look at businesses where cooperation is being promoted in the wrong places, then we get the famous examples that you guys have told so, so well. Then you get the General Electrics and, and uh, Beck Welch, and you get the, and you get the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Sears example, and you get uh, basically uh, cooperation applied in the wrong places, and it's 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 the first chicken experiment. Everywhere you everywhere you look, everywhere you look, it's astonishing. And no, and people don't learn from their experience. You'd think that they just look around them and say, "This doesn't work." Well, no, they don't, because because of the way they think. Back to the back to the importance of how we think about it. How we think about it actually makes us impervious. Impervious to certain kinds of evidence. Bad things can happen and we don't recognize it because of the lens, the way we're, the way we're thinking about it. That's why the way we think about it, AKA our theoretical framework is paramount. If, you, if you're not seeing it the right way, then you're not, you're not looking at, at, at what's lying all around us, what's lying in plain sight. Well, just to uh, put a finer point on that. So, on the cover of your book, Atlas Hugged, you've got four little symbols, right? You have a dot, a circle, a flag, and the planet, right? And the dot being the individual, the circles are groups, the, the flag is the country and the planet. And again, what is good for that individual may not be good for the group, and the group could be any definition of group, company or, or clan or, or, uh, or family. And what's good for them could not potentially may not be good for the country. What's good for the country may not be good for the planet. And so the idea really is ultimately, if we start with the biggest mind right we start by saying it has to be good for the planet now let's see what's good for the country and now within that what's good for groups etc right so you make sure that you're checking all those boxes with all of your actions and policies is that a good way to say that 
That's just fine. And it's what cap it's what conscious capitalism converges upon, is what these companies converge upon. In the first place, um, they want to do well by everyone, no harm. And so you begin at the top, precisely as you say, and then what, what's underneath that doesn't go away. These intermediate levels of organization, corporations, governments, everything below the whole earth doesn't go away. Absolutely not. Uh, we need these intermediate levels, um, but it has to be coordinated, exactly as you say, all the way down to small uh, uh, groups. That's exactly, it's not hard. Uh, Timothy, uh, why don't you take your turn here and then I'll, I'll barrel onwards. <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's interesting when you're talking about um, evolution and how it applies within the economic or business system, you know, in the biological world, it's in a sense survival, you know, it is survival of the, the fittest in the sense of the group, or as you've pointed out, um, you know, the hen house. <laughs> um, but then it begs the question of what it means for an organization to thrive. <laughs> and um, and how do you define what that looks like in the short term and the long term? And I think that's one of the flaws in our system right now is that you can be um, heavily rewarded for short term uh, production and um, at the expense of a long term health of an organization. So you could cut your R&D um, spending, for example, and you can do a share buyback, let's say, <laughs> and um, the result is stock price goes up. And in the short term, uh, things look very good. looks like you're quote unquote thriving. However, the long-term implication of not continuing to invest in your product and invest in the business, we know it doesn't necessarily set you up to thrive over the long-term. So, you know, it's interesting as we start to shift this from the scientific world or biological world into the unquote, unquote, economic system, we immediately run into this block of like, how are we defining fitness? Uh, lots, lots to say about it. And, and I think that um, cancer is a powerful example and, and a metaphor for us to learn from. It's a major theme in my novel, um, Atlas hugged, but if what cancer is, is an example of what we've been talking about, a cancer is a mutant cell that proliferates compared to the cooperative cells. You can say the cancer is a cheater cell. And so um, it's weirdly adaptive um, in, in that sense. Evolution has no foresight. And so the fact that cancers ultimately destroy the whole organism, including themselves, is, uh, is, um, is a material. And so there's, you know, the ultimate short-sighted recipe for success. Uh, as I put it in Atlas Hugged, if cancer, if cancer cells could talk, they would say to the rest of the body, look how fast we are growing. Everyone should grow as fast as us. <laughs> so, uh, and I think that kind of short-termism that you just described is, is, is cancerous. Uh, and we have to recognize, you know, rapid growth is not necessarily good for the whole uh, system. And of course, it only benefits the shareholders as typically uh, uh, practice. If actually we tried to go as rapidly as possible, but we were truly inclusive and who, who shared it, it would look very different. Um, mm. And, and um, um, there's a study, uh, I learned about it in a book by Jeffrey Pfeffer. And I think, you know, he's a uh, business professor at Stanford University and somebody yeah. who really yeah. gets all of this. He's just a wonderful, yeah. wonderful uh, person. But he cited a study of it basically followed a cohort of, of businesses starting at the time they went public on the stock exchange so that you could get information on them and then simply followed them. And what it is, is that the corporations that did well by their employees, they flat out survived longer. They were left standing five years later. And so the, you know, the, the, the flat out survival of companies is, was based on something which actually was based more on thriving than um, and I think this is an important point, Co uh, um, um, selfishness beats altruism within groups, cooperative groups beat selfish groups. And so that's why it is. And of course, that's one of the main messages of conscious capitalism. You do well by doing good. Mm, you do mm. well. It's good for your bottom line, ultimately, if you, if you organize yourself this way. And we have all the cases we need in order to in order to demonstrate that, but you need some kind of time horizon. If you're truly only trying to maximize your quarterly earnings, well then, you know, that's another thing that just appears stupid from a, uh, 
from another perspective. Oh, right. David, let's turn to the uh, the economic side. I'm going to quote you here. I love the way you phrase this. Um, uh, there are two things that don't work and only one thing that can work. One thing that doesn't work is laissez-faire because it is simply not the case that lower level entities pursuing their self-interest robustly benefits the common good. The naive metaphor of the invisible hand just ain't so. <laughs> the other thing that doesn't work is centralized planning because the world is too complex to be planned by experts. So if laissez-faire doesn't work and centralized planning doesn't work, what does? Only a managed process of cultural evolution with systemic goals in mind. That means that there must be systemic targeted selection that we work towards. Variation must be oriented around the target and there must be the identification and application of best practices. And that must be iterated again and again and again, variation, selection, replication. That's the thesis of the third way. So, so let's unpack that. You know, the, the whole free market system is based on that invisible hand. And you're saying that that doesn't work. I think partly you explained that a little bit. That's individuals pursuing their own self-interest. We believe somewhat, you know, magically that that's going to take care of everything. Now, you say it works up to a point or works in a limited way. So if you could define how the invisible hand does and doesn't work, and then we can talk about that third way. Well, it's, um, uh, I mean, there's lots of uh, forms of capitalism. And, uh, and we have uh, positive examples to choose from in addition to negative examples. And when it comes to uh, comparing nations in any respect, happiness, thriving, uh, economic well-being, uh, uh, some nations always rise to the tops of those lists. And they're the Nordic nations, they're the Netherlands, they're the Switzerlands, and um, especially the Nordic nations. And they're very entrepreneurial. And especially a small nation is so exposed to world markets that if they're not agile uh, economically, they're just not going to survive. And nevertheless, they actually approximate that third way. They're not just laissez-faire, not nearly. Um, and they're not just centralized planning. Those are the, I mean, it, it really needs to be said because this is a middle way, some kind of middle way. And the third way is not the best choice of words, even though it's what I used in that essay, because we have, you know, the third way in Britain, Tony Blair and, and so on, which was... Um, you know, not 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 what we're trying to uh, follow here. But what takes place in in the so-called social democracies is, in the first place, it is um, all the sectors of the society are strong: strong state, strong labor, strong capital, and they work collaboratively in order to create a good market. A good example of this is called flex security, which I think is um, uh, was developed in 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 Denmark. And what it notes is that the you know businesses have to be agile. And so they have to fire people on short notice. You could just can't have people permanently on, on your payroll. On the other hand, people need security. And so you combine um, um, uh, an ability of businesses to hire and fire quickly with a social security system so that if you're fired, you're not destitute. <laughs> In fact, you, you, know, you get to live on 90% of your salary for two to four years, and that gives you time to retool and retrain and and so on and so forth. And you would never come to that arrangement if you weren't working cooperatively with the state and with the, and with labor for it to be acceptable. And so you come up with a, a systemic solution, very market-based. And so I, I think it's such an important message because it, it kind of disarms what we're doing here is not just old-fashioned or you know tired lefty progressivism. It's not at all. I mean, it's, it speaks strongly against socialism in just about every time it's been practiced under that name. Isn't that interesting? And it speaks strongly against this absurd idea that we could all follow our own interests and then some invisible hand will make it come out right. How stupid is that, I feel like saying? And then we're working collaboratively to the entrepreneurial and so on and, and, uh, and so forth. Yeah, I like to joke sometimes that uh, libertarians and communists have a lot in common in the sense that it sounds great in theory, it just never worked in practice. <laughs> but but keep on, guys. Um, having said that, I do think that uh, that one of the things that we're recognizing in business today is the world has never been more unpredictable. Never. I mean, I, I joke that I first used the phrase VUCA, which, you know, stands for this uh, 
volatile, unpredictable, complex, adaptive world. In 2006, when we thought things were really changing quickly, and yet, you know, certainly over here in Europe, with the energy shock, with Brexit, with COVID, with inflation, with uh, the Ukrainian-Russian war, we've never seen so much disruption in such a such short period of time. So businesses trying to plan and using their traditional way of thinking in any kind of hierarchical structure just doesn't work anymore. And the argument increasingly is you need to have these very agile adaptive teams that can work and cooperate as a team of teams to be able to be responsive and move quickly and adjust to an unpredictable, ever-changing work environment. And I think that what's really important is that idea starts to catch on is the work that you're doing that says, and yes, this is just one of those scientific principles <laughs> that, um, that just is. It's like the law of gravity. This is the way the world works. And we're just now starting to catch up with it and understand um, that there is a model or evolving models of how we can run this way as businesses. So I, I think that the work that you're doing in terms of being a translator of this is incredibly important. Well, in the first place, uh, thank you. And in the second place, uh, you use the frame team of teams. And as I know, both of you know, that's the title of a book by General Stanley McChrystal. Yes, and, indeed. Uh, based on his experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, and it was just as you say, I mean, here this, this uh, the, the strongest military force on earth rolled into Iraq in like four days or whatever it was. But then they found themselves face to face with a new kind of enemy that was beating them, that was beating them. And in order to adapt to that, uh, McChrystal developed this team of teams concept. And so that, that illustrates the third way, I mean, basically, no, there's no question of laissez-faire in that context. Who talks about laissez-faire in the military? Uh, I mean, centralized planning, that's where the military is, is running. And what, he, and what he did was he, he basically converged upon that uh, flexible, uh, and it had to be multi-level, team of teams. Actually, team of team of teams of teams is, um, is part of it. So, uh, so that, that phrase is actually illustrating um, a whole lot. And another point to make is that, um, uh, um, and this gets like from business to economics, and I, I think it's fascinating. I, I'd, I'd be interested in your opinion uh, and your experience on relationship between the economics profession on the one hand and the business world on the other hand. There's this kind of, you know, a Venn diagram um, partially, partially overlapping. But when you go into the economic world, and what you find is, of course, in the first place, it seems to be uh, stand upon some authoritative theoretical foundation. That's one of the things that gives it its, its authority. But when you look at that foundation, you find it has to be replaced root and branch. And, and, uh, and what you just said about risk and, and uncertainty mm. is like exhibit A for that. Uh, economic theory treats treats uh, uncertainty as some like known probability, unknown probability distribution, which nevertheless exists, mm. so that we could actually assign a probability to what's happening to us in the future, and uh, and uh, that is just like profoundly not the case. We're dealing with with a future that is in, uh, um, that is um, uh, uh, deeply unpredictable, and we have to. Th that's what we have to adapt to. So, so um, mm. uh, this is why. Uh, with uh, many others, including my colleague Dennis Snower, we are arguing for paradigmatic change in economics. Yeah. And then part of what we're talking about here is how that moves over to business. Well, you know, it's an interesting point because, you know, I could argue in my career, which is only 30 years long, but the, you know, when I was studying my economics at Oxford, you know, the, the idea, the theory of the firm and the microeconomic models, um, when I went over and started working as a consultant, it was like uh, there was nothing that I'd learned in economics that had any relevance to how a business actually operates. And that was the first lesson of, oh, my gosh, there is this big gap between 
whatever we're doing economic in theory. Now, having said that, I think the whole evolution of behavioral economics, and I think that we now at the fringe have things like donut economics and other ways where people are fundamentally shifting some of uh, the fundamental assumptions we make uh, about the world uh, and then developing economic models. And, and then I think there's one other thing to mention, which is I think the economics of mutuality, a group that's spun out of Mars, is also starting to try to bridge that gap between the economic theory and how we start to measure things like capital, you know, natural capital, social capital, human capital, you know, and economic capital, that all these things are ways of starting to redefine what it means to be fit or redefine what it means to thrive. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's where we need to start heading. <laughs> yeah. So again, I think that illustrates, and thank you for all of that, but uh, uh, it illustrates this um, uh, a third way concept that laissez-faire doesn't work, centralized planning doesn't work. The only thing that does work is this experimental process. And therefore it's the only thing that ever has worked. That, that's a new piece to our narrative here. It's the only, so if you look at any positive, successful positive change effort, you find a convergence to this pragmatic, experimental, multi-level approach because it's the only thing that can work. And so we have the McChrystal example, we have the donut economic example, we have the conscious capitalism example, we have the B Corp example, uh, we have the triple bottom line example. These are all um, convergences. And so, and so in the first place, let's celebrate that. But in the second place, let's go beyond it. Because we can't have like, you know, all these different frameworks running on parallel tracks uh, in, in, some, in some sense still occupying separate worlds. There has to be a, a degree of unification. And one of the things that, uh, that evolution does is provide that common language. It's, you know, nothing makes sense except in the light of. Not, mm. uh, there's grandeur in this, this view of life. We could understand what we're doing, uh, uh, these successful change efforts. Uh, common denominators at stake. In some sense, it's all about cooperation and adaptability. In each and every case, it doesn't matter what the, what the context is. And the same principles that operate at a small scale mm. are scale independent. They're needed at the large scale too. So, so, so that I think is maybe the greatest gift that, um, um, that evolutionary science has to offer. It's just precisely as in Darwin's day, this way of organizing the information that's lying all uh, around us. And we can look back on it and we can say, oh, it, I mean, it was there in front of our eyes the whole time, but now we can put it together like a big jigsaw puzzle the way we, the way we couldn't before. Well, let's, uh, let's go, uh, you know, stay at that level of, uh, you know, below the, uh, you know, the, the, the structures, what is the understanding or view of what are human beings? fundamentally like, right? And uh, classical economics has a particular view of human beings, as you talked about, selfish, individualistic, materialistic, short-term. I think you quote somewhere David Corton saying, neoliberal economic, economics is a totally made-up discipline based on faulty assumptions from the very get-go. And yet it presents itself as a science and it is taught in our leading institutions as if it is a science. I'm talking about neoliberal, right? Not the evolution, not the... Uh, the versions that are emerging, behavioral economics, et cetera, which are now nudging towards. But I think going back, what is the underlying view of human beings? And as you have said, human beings are the primate equivalents of bees. I think economists have kind of treated us like fleas or flies, <laughs> a non-social there's, uh, there's your gift for words, Raj. Uh, uh, bees, not fleas. There, there's, your, there's your gift for words. Right, but we <laughs> are social creatures, right? And so the whole fundamental assumptions of economics are invalid in that sense, right? What, what, what defines us more? Of course, we are individualistic too and selfish when we you know, need to be, but we are much more than that, right? And that defines or that explains our success as homo sapiens, as becoming the apex species on this planet. It is not because of the things that the economists celebrate, but it's these other things, right? So if you could talk about how we are the primate equivalent of bees, and what does that mean in terms of how we should be organizing our lives? Yeah, let me do, let me do it by way of a story. One of my favorite stories from a, a colleague named Jim Cohen, who's a cognitive neuroscientist, and he was seeing a client. He was an old man who was a, a, a war veteran, 
and was experiencing late, late onset traumatic stress. And the old man wouldn't do anything Jim asked him to do. He was just totally resistant to therapy. Eventually he says, I want my wife with me. And Jim was shocked. No one had ever asked this before. So his wife came the next time. And at first Jim treated her as a bystander and the gentleman was no more receptive than before. And then his wife said, I never feared to fail to tear up when, when I tell the story, let me hold his hand. So she held his hand and he opened up the therapy. And Jim was amazed. Something went on in this man's brain at the act of holding hands. And so, and so he embarked upon a research program in which he would take everyday people like college students, he'd put them in an fMRI machine, a brain scanner, and he would stress them by with electric shocks, kind of electric shocks, and he'd look at their brain. Of course, alone, their brain was going haywire. And then he would have them hold the hand of either a stranger or a loved one. And holding the hand of a loved one had this tremendous calming effect. And so he was able to duplicate the experience of the old man in anybody. And based upon this, he was now taking on a little bit of evolutionary theory. He, he, he developed something called social baseline theory. And now here's the answer to your question, Raj. In our entire history as a species, individuals never lived alone, never. They always lived in the context of small and for the most part, highly cooperative, even when those groups were warring with other groups. That means that individuals always had social resources to supplement their personal resources. And our brains and bodies evolved against that background. What that means is, is that if you socially isolate an individual so that they only have their personal resources to fall back upon, it is interpreted by the brain and body as an emergency situation. Homo economicus is actually a pathological condition. And so therefore, this is the sense in which this is the sense in which an individual is really is like an ant in a colony. If you have someone that's suffering from social isolation, they shouldn't have therapy. You should you should provide social resources. And so, and so what this means is that the fundamental unit is not the individual person. It is the small group, a cooperative group, but that group must be appropriately structured, appropriately structured so that exploitation cannot take place within the, within the uh, uh, group. And it goes, on from, it goes on from there. But the idea of a small, small and appropriately structured groups as, as the cells of multicellular society and then an individual thriving, both thriving and efficaciousness, double individuals will thrive as individuals and they'll be more efficacious in these groups than they could mm. possibly be on their, on their own. And so the small and appropriately structured group, that you, you always have to add that part because we've, as we've seen with, from Darwin on, all groups, even pairs, we know this. <laughs> Just look at relationships. Look at dyadic <laughs> relationships. They can be parasitic and exploitative. And, and uh, you know, that selfishness feeds altruism within groups. It applies to groups of size two. It even applies to groups of size one, if you want to start thinking of an individual as a group, which is, which is takes uh -huh. in, another, in, yeah. another, in another direction. And so you have to have these protections. Uh, so you, have to, you have to make sure that competition does not take place in some places so that it can take place and mm. and others that's what appropriately structured means but given that given that the small and appropriately structured group is the cells that we need to be building and we need to be restoring that because 70 years of individualism has broken down that cellular structure robert putnam got that right in his book bowling alone that was published in 2000 i i i believe 22 years ago the sociologist robert putnam nailed it when he just said the groups are disappearing in our lives, the bowling clubs, the, the are just the whole fabric of of of, mm. of existing in small groups is 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 uh, is um, uh, deteriorating before our eyes. Twenty two years ago. So mm. anyhow. So David, <laughs> that brings us to the uh, the core design principles, which are created explicitly for that. Right? How do we create? Yeah groups that are pro-social 
that also enable individuals to thrive, that allow us to accomplish great things together. So if you could talk about it, you actually, you know, like I said, you really are. I mean, you worked with E.O. Wilson and you worked with Eleanor Ostrom and you've worked with many of the giants in, in parallel disciplines uh, as well. So if you could talk about your work with Eleanor Ostrom, tell us about who she is and what these core design principles are and how they help us create these kinds of groups. Yeah, thank you. And I'll, I'll, I'll use the example to illustrate several things, including this parallel universe uh, problem. So uh, Eleanor Ostrom is a political scientist, well-known in that field, um, unknown to most economists, even, even when she won their prize, the Nobel Prize in, in economics, and still is the most neglected of all the Nobel laureates in, in economics. So here we have this problem of something that can, something amazing can happen within a certain silo and the unknown beyond its, its um, uh, borders. But what she did was she studied the famous tragedy of the commons, uh, basically for groups that are trying to manage a common pool of resource, like a, a pasture, a forest, or a lake, or, or groundwater, uh, when, when many individuals can draw upon the resource, there's the temptation to make, take more than your share. That's what cheating is. That's what the first chicken experiment is in the context of in that context is taking more than your share. And so that leads to over-exploitation of the, of the commons, the tragedy of the commons. Uh, economists thought that the tragedy would always occur. And so the whole concept that we have to privatize, privatize, privatize is based on that logic. And, um, or, uh, uh, or you have to regulate it uh, by uh, top-down regulations. And what Ostrom showed by actually studying common pool resource groups is that some, not all, some were able to self-manage, self-manage their resource, avoid the tragedy of the company. They had the appropriate structure and not all of them did. This is a very, very important point to make is that um, these groups varied in their ability to avoid the tragedy. Only some and had um, could self-manage. And then she identified the appropriate structure in the form of eight core design principles. And uh, and so I think we have time to list them. I think we do. Do we? Yes. Yes. I'll do it no, very, go fast, ahead. very fast. No. But um, our listeners should just think about a business group, any group, including a business group, and just see how well their group um, um, stacks up. So the groups that worked, that self-managed their resources, number one, they had a strong sense of identity and purpose. They knew they were a group. They knew who was a member. They knew the boundary of the resource. Two, there was proportional benefits and costs. Not the case that some individuals got more than others, unfairly got more than others. So basically what you got from the group was proportional to what you gave to the group. Decision-making was fair and inclusive. Not the case that some members of the group made the decisions, called the shots, and others were not a part of that process. Agreed upon behavior was monitored. You have to know if what we agreed upon to do, are we, are we doing it? If we're not, something has to be done. Um, uh, but it can be, it can be measured. It can start out friendly. It doesn't have to be, to be hard. Starts out friendly and then it escalates uh, as needed. The conflicts will occur. There need to be conflict resolution mechanisms. A group has to have the authority to self-govern. This is why Ostrom is a libertarian hero. The groups have to be able to call their own shots. They cannot be bossed around from the outside. And finally, there must be appropriate relations with other uh, groups. They represent the same principles. And so these same principles are needed to govern between group interactions in addition to within group interactions. That's called polycentric governance. And so I think that if you think about that, then you'll see that these, this appropriate structure, it should be far more general than uh, than common pool resource groups. This appropriate mm. structure is needed by any group that calls for cooperation and coordination. So that's what I did with Ostrom. Uh, we basically generalized those core design principles. So uh, since we did a study that actually compared business groups with other kinds of groups, that's published. And what we shown was, was that business groups on average are deficient in all eight of those principles, every <laughs> every fucking one of them, with the, with the, 
With the biggest deficits being decision-making, in other words, many people in their work do mm. not take part in the decisions that influence them. Autonomy, many people in their work are not allowed to do their jobs as they see fit. And sense of identity and purpose, many people in their jobs do not find much meaning. So businesses did worse than other organizations or groups in society, right? Yeah, on average, on average, but there's variation. And so the real message here for any kind of group, I don't care what kind of group it is, any kind of group, if you study them, you'll find in the first place, you'll find variation. And that's true for business groups too. It's only the averages that's different. And you'll find that the performance of the group correlates strongly with implementation of the core design principles. And so when we look in the business world, we find that the mean value, the bell-shaped curve is displaced to the low end, but there's still a tail. And then if you look at the top of that tail, you find your conscious capitalism groups. That's what you find. That's what Mm -hmm. you find. And so that is, how interesting is that? Uh, How interesting. And so that becomes the examples for us to, to learn from, but that's how the conscious capitalism movement has always presented itself. And so mm-hmm. I'm always kind of struck by, and, and that's why it's such a delight to be being with you and, and talking with, with you. What's the ad value? I mean, they're there. Yeah. They're in plain sight. Um, they have wonderful storytellers uh, telling the story. But I think that we could do much, much better of identifying them as the exemplars and just moving that whole distribution mm-hmm. up that all businesses should be like the conscious capitalism business. And there's no reason why there's no, there's no strong argument against that. There's no strong. So basically I talk about capturing the intellectual high ground. We've captured Mm. the intellectual Mm. high ground. And that's what I think is what's, what's so important about uh, uh, us getting together, basically communicating. Well, David, you 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 play into exactly where I was going to go with this, which is, um, you know, you're right. We've been you know pushing this concept and holding up these exemplars for nigh on 14 years. It'll be 15 years come February. And um, um, in my experience, um, there's sort of a couple stages people go through. The first one is education or awareness of, yeah, there is this better way of doing things. But then comes the really interesting question is change at scale in organizations. And, um, and I'm wondering, you know, uh, you know, increasingly, um, I'm contrasting the idea that, you know, the traditional consulting firms take a very linear approach to change management or transitions. You know, we're going to develop a Gantt chart. We're going to have 20 different plans going on simultaneously, you know, divided into four big groups or whatever, but it's in a, it's in a war room and it's up there on the wall and it's um, versus a more systems view of, you know, we can't plan for these things. We can set a framework. But then we have to evolve our practice and the issue becomes how quickly can we evolve practice and learn practice and learn what's working what's not working and um so i'm increasingly trying to move in that direction and i'm curious from your field of watching how ecosystems evolve or change um uh, or even how a hive changes using going back to the example you know what are your observations about changing at scale inside large organizations what's critical here yeah that's a great way to wrap up uh this uh with of course future conversations in mind one point to make is that which is a hard lesson to learn because us humans like to see harmony in nature we like to go out we take a walk it's so soothing it's so tranquil and stuff like that what we don't realize is that for the for the animals and plants it's a ghetto out there it's um You know, I mean, nature often is like a laissez-faire economy. It's like, you know, species have all evolved to separately maximize their survival and reproduction, very often at cross purposes with um, each other. There are harmonious natural systems, but just like with humans, they had to have been selected as systems. No system-level adaptation without system-level selection. But I think that one of the most exciting things that we can do together is to identify amazing examples of transformative cultural 
change that have taken place at the top end of that distribution. Mm-hmm. And the two that I've learned about uh, through my friendship with Raj and my encounter with the conscious capitalism movement is in the first place, uh, Barry Wamuller, uh, this uh, organization of Bob Chapman that mm-hmm. they've written about in uh, Everybody Matters. He's been a guest on our podcast, so we can yeah, reference that. Yeah, and too. then in the second place, I've most recently learned about Microsoft as a born-again institution. So to very mm. quickly go through each, I'll introduce it, and then you can elaborate that not only has Barry Wamuller, which is a manufacturing firm that started out in the brewery industry, um, mm. uh, adopted this Everybody Matters approach, and so therefore thrived, but they then proceeded not to acquire other companies, but to adopt them, <laughs> as he put it, and to, in over a hundred cases, turn those companies around, not by hiring and firing new people, but by changing the culture of the organization. And they did it a, over a hundred times. If that's not proof, what would be? And then in the case of Microsoft, we have in three stages of basically Bill Gates. Um, and then who followed Bill Gates, Raj? Steve, Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer. And then who followed Steve Ballmer? Satya Nadella. Right. And so, you know, so this was, I mean, this actually started out pretty cutthroat and competitive with Bill Gates, got even more so. And there's the famous illustration, the Microsoft org chart with everyone pointing guns at each other. Um, that's the like, competition in all the wrong places. But then a total game changer that was accomplished in one of the largest organizations of the world. And so what this is telling us in both of those cases is that positive cultural evolution can take place. We can get from here to there. Even when it involves a U-turn, we can get from here to there. It has happened. And so and so once we understand it and the potential for that, there is just tremendous potential for doing it better and faster and more mindfully, more conscious, conscious cultural evolution. And so we end up with tremendous optimism. And when we, we, we adopt the, the correct worldview, then, then a truly uh, rapid multi-level cultural change in years, not decades, is possible. So that's what's on offer. That's what I think we can do together. David, such wisdom, such inspiration, uh, but really such incredible insight in reframing how we're thinking about so many aspects of business and society. Thank you so much for your time today. It was really thrilling. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, David. And, uh, you know, we didn't talk much about Atlas Hug, but uh, for our listeners, it's a delightful read. Uh, many of you may have read Atlas Shrugged when you were growing up. It seems like a rite of passage uh, in the U.S., uh, but this will really open your eyes to the fundamental flaws uh, in that way of thinking and being and the much richer world that lies on the other side of that uh, that understanding. So it's really, a, I'm, I, you know, as a, as a writer of business books, I'm really quite envious that you're able to pull off a work of fiction with such grace and ease and, you know, kind of a, a, a compelling read. I know that your father was a very famous novelist. Yeah, so uh, my father was Sloan Wilson, who basically helped define the 1950s with the man in the gray flannel suit. And so it's uh, there's an interesting <laughs> continuity there. And uh, and uh, Atlas Hugged is Atlas Hugged is is so uh, anti um, Ayn Rand that it is not even sold. It is gifted. Uh, and uh, on um, on um, on uh, my website, davidstonewilson.world. So uh, you don't have to pay a penny for the e-version or the audio version. But of course, if you want to, then thank you very much. So <laughs> I have to read. Can I, can I just read one paragraph out of that before we say goodbye? Sure. It kind of captures it. Is that two kinds of people were drawn to objectivism. This is Anne Rand's philosophy, right? A wealthy and powerful people who like to believe that their ambitions were morally pure and young and idealistic people who wanted to change the world. The rich and the powerful were the first to convert because it enabled them to take more and more without guilt. Indeed, they could feel downright self-righteous about it. It was an easy sell because nothing sounds better to a powerful person than to be told that their ambitions are morally pure and good for everyone else. And I think that captures the world we are in, right? So beautifully. So uh, Thank you, David, for the breadth and depth and span of your work. And I'm just so delighted that we are now connected 
that our movement uh, is going to benefit tremendously from your insights and and providing it with that uh, intellectual you know high ground and foundation i think that we've been lacking so <clears throat> thank you so much thank you sir where we can do great things together well thank you david and thank you to our listeners and if you enjoyed this week's podcast on whatever channel you're listening to feel free to hit the subscription button and if you want go over to apple and itunes and give us a rating and leave us a message. Raj and I are always uh, looking for feedback. So any and all is most welcome. And thank you to our producers, Tech Sounds, for your help in making sure that this comes out in a high quality fashion. And Raj, who else do you want to thank? I would like to thank Technological de Monterey and the Conscious Enterprise Center for sponsoring and supporting this work and bringing it into the world in a bigger way. Well, thank you all, and we'll see you next week.